Hello, Alaska. This is Pat Race. And this is Matt Buxton. And this is a podcast about Alaska. Hello, Matt. How are you doing today? Uh, you know, it's been a week. It really, it, it's... I, is I, it the is it the background of the, the the war stuff, or is it the like legislature, or is it just sort of like COVID, or is it just sort of a combination of all of these this this beautiful stew that we're living in? I, I guess if if the stew it has its own is big enough now to have its own like title currents, I feel like we are at the point the kind of like every like couple months point where like everything just crashes and it just sort of feels like everyone's kind of like simultaneously miserable and sort of like confused and worried about everything all at once. So it's all to say like, I sat down today, like having no idea what we were going to talk about because I feel like, like kind of this baseline level of just sort of like anxiety, I think. Yeah. So everything sort of feels like equally alarm bell in the same way and then same volume as everything else, basically. And then then you have the, you know, the Ukraine war and and nuclear war on top of that. So it's just it's, yeah. it's a nice little soup of anxiety right now. Yeah, I think a couple of days ago when they shelled the uh, largest nuclear power plant in Europe, that was a little anxiety uh, inducing for me. But. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, oh, wait, why? Why are you shooting rockets at that? That seems dangerous. I I don't know. I've got a little bit of someone described it as sort of that generational trauma of Chernobyl and Three Mile Island or whatever the what, how many miles are we? Yeah. <laughs> the but yeah, someone described it as the generational trauma of nuclear incidents of that our generation have kind of perceived and. And maybe I'm just sort of squicked out by by that, but um, but yeah, I just in the there's a lot of politicians. Murkowski is one of them who who want to bring nuclear power into Alaska to like power remote villages and seeing things like like a you know an attack on a facility like that and realizing that you know if you blow up a you blow up a nuclear power plant that's going to have some impacts on the climate and the people in that area. If you blow up a dam, like maybe there's going to be some water is going to get loose. And if you blow up like a solar panel, like you're going to have little, yeah, you're not going to salt little sh- solar solar panel shards on the ground. Oh no, you're not going to salt the earth for like forever, right? Like that's yeah. that's sort of. The, I remember that's what my dad talked about a lot as, a, as when I growing up, and sort of always affected me is that like nuclear waste for the most part is going to be here forever like there's no clean cleaning it up there's just ways of hiding it basically and how long is anything really you know how long do our like signs last right like there's going to be at a point thousands of years from now and some poor guy is like trying to grow you know corn or, or you know try to grow some crop and he digs through the uranium plant by accident right and like he's not gonna know they've got a a whole system set up for like how do you um, you know, some of this waste is going to outlive our language and our the whatever communication we have. How do you mark that? How do you what sort of universal markings do you put on this concrete bunker full of waste? Right. Yeah. Like there's people that are trying to figure that out. And it's 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 interesting that we want to go and make more. But on the other hand, like I, someone shared an article with me that that talks about using more inert fuels and even using some of that waste um, with you know, using particle accelerators to, to do essentially the same thing, but in sort of a safer, uh, a safer way. 
Um, so I don't know, maybe there's technologies out there on like a 20, 30 year timeline that we'll see that, that help us out. But right now, like in the, in the present, it's like, I don't want a little, you know, I don't want a Connex container in my backyard full, full of like a mini, mini uh, plant that no one knows how to run or fix. I feel like this is like, I didn't expect that we asked to get into the nuclear, uh, power tangent, no. but it is no, like, this neither. is a thing that's going to take us off. <laughs> Which is, I think yeah. it's, there is like, there is interesting stuff around it, right? There's, I mean, I, it, I don't know enough to, to say like fully, but there are like people out there that talk about it, at least talk about it being like safer and less, you know, long ranging damage or whatever. But like, I don't, I'm not a nuclear scientist and I don't know how to like vet those claims. And I don't, so like, it's all to say, like, it goes back. I feel like we can just like go back tie all sorts of threads back to like several yeah. episodes ago but it's like it's hard to parse it kind of goes back to the ideas of like you know maybe like how we consume things when we are ultimately like in a closed system and we don't get to you know once we use this stuff you got to think about how we're going to use it forever right so anyways before we get that's that's as far as down this little i'm just a little toe in the tangent i want to go one more step down that road and i want to say that like i think that you know when you have stuff that generates that kind of waste you're pushing that's a cost that you're pushing forward and so you know you look at things like the cleanup at the hanford site and that's a cost that like we're absorbing now and we're paying for now it's a real cost but it probably wasn't considered when you're you know creating the material as part of the the cost of production and so i think that that's another piece of this that's interesting to me but also the the idea that when i talk about if i say anything negative about nuclear power i there are a lot of people who agree with me on a whole other slate of policy things that will disagree with me on that and think that that is what we need to save us from climate change and it's really interesting to, yeah to i, I think yeah, it's just worth split. acknowledging that yeah Okay, so I went down. We we just went down a rabbit hole. Let's, uh, but I want to go down a different rabbit hole. I, I, All right, we're just poking around the rabbit here, holes today. I have come here today to bring you a different rabbit hole, and that is the rabbit hole of dedicated funds. So, um, you were you were reporting on a meeting this week, and maybe you can tell me a little bit about that meeting. But the the idea of dedicated funds came up. Maybe you can give me a little background on what was being discussed. It was just regarding the PCE and and higher education funds. Yeah. So basically, there's this sort of issue in the legislature right now and we've talked about it before but we're on pce um so it's power cost equalization program the higher and then there's also the higher education investment fund and these are two like pots of money that the legislature has sort of set aside with the thinking that they will earn money and then fund these programs pce funding power cost equalization and higher education fund um, funding um, student scholarships and uh the whammy program which is like this medical exchange program right and so there's been this like long running question, though, of can you set aside money for a dedicated purpose? Right. And so we talk about the dedicated funds clause. And so there's a there's a thing in the legislature or in the Constitution that says, you know, we shall not dedicate funds for dedicated purposes. Right. It's created this whole legal issue. It's been tied around the sweep. And it's like what is available for appropriation and what's not. And it has like these sort of big sort of policy questions but there's like it sounds like you did the i'm gonna zoom out like three different uh magnification levels and take a really sort of fundamental picture here right well not i mean okay so so what the so what the constitution says is 
uh, and this is under um, Article 9, which is, you know, taxation of finance, and, and under Section 7, which is, is dedicated funds. And it says, the proceeds of any state tax or license shall not be dedicated to any special purpose. And then it's been amended uh, uh, to include a carve-out for, like, the permanent fund. It says, except as provided in Section 15 of this article, or when required by the federal government for state participation in federal programs. This provision shall not prohibit the continuance of any dedication for special purposes existing upon the date of ratification of this section by the people of Alaska. So if there were dedicated funds prior to this constitution being ratified, that's just the way it is. Um, and then if you have like a federal program that requires dedication of things, uh, you know, for like a matching fund or whatever, then then that's that's allowed and then also they they there's some other things that are over the years have been kind of sussed out of this and that the you know things like bonding and and typical government um processes aren't really part of this what i guess what i ran into is uh, I, w I think i was confused about what a dedicated fund was and so when you think about a dedicated fund what do you think a dedicated fund is I think the, I mean, the way that the legislature certainly thinks about it is a pot of money that they set aside for a dedicated purpose, right? So that's yeah, that's not what a dedicated fund is. No, so <laughs> dedicated <laughs> fund, so a dedicated fund is is like a a revenue source, not like a pot of money. There's a couple of great resources that people need to know about. One is the uh, Citizen's Guide to the Constitution, um, which is a great document it goes into detail on like some of the wiggly stuff and some of the related court cases um and then there's always the constitutional convention you just go back and like listen to these people talk about these things well, which is what we're going to do right now yeah. so actually uh <laughs> okay. I, I always mean to bring this up so where, where yeah. can people find this stuff like what's the what's the easiest source to be able to like go back and look through some of this stuff yeah so i go to uh there's a um a website called Google and I type in <laughs> citizens guide to the constitution and then it just appears and I love it. And then, um, and then if I want to go listen to the constitutional convention minutes, I, I go to a website called Google and I type in Alaska constitutional convention. All right. Uh, and, all right. <laughs> <laughs> but they're, they're all, they're all on state websites. They're, they're available to people. Um, you know, like so just the state website. I feel is like a good source, I, I feel so, like there's yeah. I feel like there's no point in saying w three dot l e g i s dot state dot a k dot u s slash doc slash pdf slash citizens underscore guide dot pdf right like so Google it. <laughs> All right, there you go. <laughs> okay, well no, they can find it in the show notes. I'll put it in the show notes. Okay, <laughs> that's that's right. kind of what I was trying to hint at, but. <laughs> Damn it. All right. You know what, Matt, where people can find this, they can find this all in the show notes. All right. <laughs> okay. All right. Um, so anyways, um, let's go listen to some constitutional convention stuff because I love that. We're going to listen to some, some of the old boys talk about what they're talking about. Mr. Barr. In Colorado, approximately 90% of the tax collections are earmarked. In Texas, 85%. Kansas has over 140 dedicated funds, which embrace over 80% of the state's revenue. Now, the thought was suggested here, we should leave it up to the legislature. Over a period of years, we have several different legislatures made up of different people. And uh, the feelings of these people towards earmarked revenues vary from year to year. We might have a legislature there sometime there who would earmark approximately 90% of our 
tax sort, uh, revenue. And once it is earmarked, it is frozen. We have heard here how the sportsmen want all the licenses earmarked, and they're not unique in that respect by any means. <coughs> the uh, fisherman's license, commercial fisherman's <coughs> license is earmarked, goes to the uh, Sick and Disabled Fisherman's Fund, and if you want to fight on your hands, just try to get that unearmarked. In the last session of the legislature, it was proposed that all the fuel tax should go into the general fund, and we were flooded with wires of protest from all over the territory, especially by organizations, truckers and whatnot, who use gas. Our other largest earmarked fund is the tobacco tax to be used for schools, and I believe it should. And that is one thing that the people of this territory want, is that tobacco tax for the schools, because they realize the great need for schools. Now all you have to do is earmark another fund and it will never be unearmarked. If we leave this up to the legislature, to succeeding legislatures over a period of years, we'll end up like poor old Texas and Colorado. We won't have anything in the general fund for appropriations. The question is, Mr. McCutcheon. One more observation. The people in this assembly shouldn't overlook this fact, that the earmarking of funds is the fashion in which higher taxes are foist upon segments of industry or the public. The people in these various classifications of industry or public feeling that this money is coming to them are willing to submit to higher taxes. And it is not a matter of good fiscal arrangements to be taxing segments or classifications of our society or industry for special purpose at higher rates than should be charged against or properly assessed against that classification or group of industry. That consequently, I am opposed to the striking of this section. The question is, Mrs. Herman. I also am opposed to striking section seven. I think the real evil inherent in, uh, in uh, earmarking is that it so often leaves the treasury, the general fund, short of funds on which to operate. I can recall one occasion in our territorial history during the war when uh, the road fund had been built up to quite a considerable amount. And uh, it was impossible to build roads. There was no material, were no materials available and no help available. And that uh, sum pyramided up to a very considerable amount. While at the same time, the territory was borrowing money uh, in order to meet its monthly current obligations. Now, I know we legally can't borrow money, but the fact of the matter is that we did. And uh, I am not uh, opposed to funds for roads, as was suggested here this morning. And I think the funds that are already earmarked are uh, probably properly earmarked. But I would hate to see the door left open to earmark additional funds with the probable effect of reducing the general fund to the point where uh, the services to the citizens of the territory and the expense of operating the territory had to be seriously curtailed. And I'll uh, edit this down a little bit, um, but I think the interesting thing here, uh, first of all, they're talking about earmarking, which is kind of different uh, lingo. It's a little more slangy. And so they, they ended up deciding to use the word dedicated funds instead of earmarking mm. um, because they felt like it had a more specific meaning. Now we have used, instead of earmarking, the term dedicate revenues. 
because I believe uh, after a study was made of this that the dedication of revenues was really what was meant instead of the earmarking thereof. And our advisors were unanimous on that and if anyone would like a little further discussion of that subject, Mr. Hurley, who is a member of our committee, is able to give it the difference between earmarking and dedication. And we're sure that it was the dedication that was intended as the restriction here. Earmarking, in addition, is sort of a slang phrase, and I don't believe it occurs in very many constitutions. If there's any doubt on that, I'd like to have Mr. Hurley explain it. Would the delegates care to have Mr. Hurley explain the comment? Mr. Hurley? I love that. He's like, oh man, why'd you guys call on me? <laughs> uh, I might say to start with that it did create some problem because the finance committee uh, also refers in their enrolled copy to the matter of earmarking of revenues. I don't think it's an extremely serious problem, uh, one as serious as the chairman may have indicated, but uh, in pursuing the other constitutions and the definitions of uh, earmarking as revealed in various uh, dictionaries and other <coughs> word descriptions, uh, it appeared that the term earmarking might also be applied to uh, the allocation of revenues appropriated by the legislature to a given department. Uh, appropriating, for example, uh, $500,000 to the Fish and Game Commission uh, and earmarking within that uh, earmarking within that uh, $100,000 for the propagation of salmon. Uh, whereas the term dedicating appeared to be uh, starting from the beginning of the process, that, that, that they were prohibited from the start. And uh, it was suggested that uh, that situation did uh, arise and that perhaps uh, the word dedicating uh, would better express what we had in mind in that uh, these funds uh, were not within the realm of the legislature to appropriate out of the general fund. I might say that the words uh, is not sacred, and if someone has a better idea, well, I'm sure we'll let them listen to it. So, so they chose to use the word dedicating instead of earmarking because essentially what the legislature does every time they allocate funds to any purpose is that they're earmarking those funds, right? So they made a real conscious effort to target the source of funds. Is that what you're hearing there? You know, they say it's, it's interesting to hear them say like the, how we got from dedicated revenues. Is that makes a lot of sense and to dedicated funds that today is sort of morphed around a little bit yeah it's right a little imprecise sort of language that they ended up with but they do speak about it in pretty precise terms so it's like pretty mm -hmm. clear what they are intending here yeah are there mr gray i'd like to ask mr hurley if they if you found the word dedicated funds in any other legal or constitution well, I might carry one step further in that uh, uh, we did also uh, find the term earmarking used in other connections other than dedicated funds, and so it was just a balance. Mr. White. President, 
sure the finance committee has no objection to that definition, except it seems to me that uh, dedication could be interpreted in the same way. Uh, one point I did wish to make here, though, is that I hope that when Stalin drafting comes to the finance article, that they will retain the idea of uh, dedicating of taxes. Now, I don't, it may or may not be important here, but there's a difference between earmarking or dedicating taxes and earmarking or dedicating revenues. I just uh, bring it up here for, for consideration of the delegates. I, in my own mind, I don't think the distinction is important in this particular instance. It is later on in the finance article. Are there other questions? Mr. President, Mr. White, I take it you mean that revenues could include taxes, but it might also include other things. For instance, licenses, fines, etc., would be included in the term revenues, whereas taxes would be only taxes. The reason we made the distinction, Mr. President, uh, is because all proceeds coming to the state are revenues, really, and you have to dedicate or allocate uh, revenues to special purposes. Whereas what we were trying to get at is the allocation or dedication or earmarking of the proceeds of a particular tax to a particular purpose. And that's kind of the main thing right there. He says what we were trying to get at was you was the dedication of a particular proceeds of a particular tax to a particular purpose. So if we're going to have a specific tax that goes to a specific purpose, that's what they're trying to stop with that with that piece of uh, the Constitution. And the reason for this, it was viewed as kind of a, um, a fiscal evil, it was described as at the time. And uh, the reason it was seen that way is because some other states had had a lot of um, earmarking or dedication of revenues um, to the point where their ability in the legislature was was really restricted. So they had, um, they said that one of the Rocky Mountain states had uh, only 17% of their revenue was available for the legislature to allocate because so, so much of it was dedicated. So that was what they were trying to avoid with this. Yeah, I think we that sort of seems to be like the fundamental like push and pull right now and a lot of the sort of high-level budget talks is, you know, how you can't bind one let you can't one legislature can't bind a future legislature uh, you know, the, the ability of the legislature to retain its ability to appropriate so does this kind of fit into this like kind of talk we hear now about how every year uh, all programs should have to compete for funds? Is that kind of this is sort is that sort of what they're getting at here that like the legislature should sort of be reviewing its spending every year? So so just recently we're it was announced that we're going to receive fifty eight million dollars from this opioid settlement, right? There's no reason the legislature can't take that money, put it into a a specific fund. I, I think to put it into a specific fund and say this is going to be used to um, to help opioid a addicts or you know to put it to a specific purpose that's that's fine um, but th what they can't do is they can't like institute a tax on pharmaceuticals and then use that to help people that have an opioid addiction because that's a, that's dedicating a, a revenue and the problem that they ran into. Um, wasn't so much that it bound, you know, the legislature can undo anything the legislature can do, right? So it doesn't really bind them, but but it, in a sense it kind of does because it creates a, um, 
if you have a specific proceed that's benefiting a group, then you have a constituency that's going to protect that proceed, right? So, for example, like you could you taking that opioid settlement money and putting it somewhere, you know, is okay. But if they had like a law that also said like any any proceeds that we ever receive from an opioid settlement automatically go to X Y you know or taxes go to X Y or Z, that would be illegal because it would basically it almost sounds like they it's like creating like a like a bypass you know you're like damming right. up the river and you're you're saying it's gonna this is or diverting the river and it's going to this other purpose before the legislature even gets to grab it exactly so, least, so the idea is that it the leg the the revenue right is sort of funneling through the legislature and the legislature gets to put it to uses but once it's already in the hands of the legislature kind of doesn't matter what they're doing with it Right. Kind of yeah, that's that's my take on it. And so this is here's I'm just going to read this little paragraph um, that is kind of commentary from the Constitutional Convention. Even those persons or interests who seek the dedication of revenues for their own projects will admit that the earmarking of taxes or fees for other interests is a fiscal evil. So, you know, if I want it for my project, I'll, I'll still admit that it's bad for your project. Uh, but if allocation is permitted for one interest, the denial of it to another is difficult. And the more special funds are set up, the more difficult it becomes to deny other requests until the point is reached where neither the governor nor the legislature has any real control over the finances of the state. And so that's what we're trying to avoid with the dedicated funds um, section of the Constitution is we're trying to avoid a situation where now the, the, the legislature and the governor have no control over the finances because they're already preemptively allocated when they come in. So mm -hmm. all this money coming in to the state, if it if it's earmarked or dedicated to a specific purpose, then we can't decide to put it towards another purpose without jumping through some hoops. Mm -hmm. It's interesting though because it's it it really makes sense in a more traditional budget system, right, where we are the money that's coming in that year is all pretty much going out that year, right? But and so yeah. then it kind of it runs into the problem, right, of. Um, the, the sort of modern system in Alaska where we've had like several, you know, massive boom years where we all of a sudden have, you know, billions of dollars in the permanent fund, you know, million, hundreds of millions of dollars sort of socked away in all these other funds. It doesn't seem, it was, is that, that doesn't seem to be really like, like, fully contemplated in this sort of discussion. It seems like they're talking more about as if we're living like the hand to mouth instead of we're, you know, living. Well, and we were at the know. time, right? We were. Yeah, we were at the time. And now we're like, you know, we've, we've got these like big stores, you know, now we're, now we're, tr we're trust fund now. kids, right? We're trust yeah. fund kids. We've got this giant thing that spins off revenue. And so, um, so the thing that I took, you know, going back to kind of the beginning of this misunderstanding for me, at least, was that I looked at that and said it, the constitutional um, that constitutional section, and it says the proceeds of any tax or license uh, shall not be dedicated. And and for me, I I see that and I say, okay, well, tax or license, the the permanent fund interest is not a tax or a license. It's just it's just money that's appearing from our investment income. And so it seems like that would kind of exist outside of this. Um, but uh, what was pointed out to me is that the Alaska Supreme Court, <laughs> Supreme Court has interpreted the phrase proceeds of any state tax or license to mean all sources of state revenue. For example, the court ruled that a state law that granted state land to University of Alaska and required proceeds from that land to be put into a university trust fund was an unconstitutional dedication of funds. So what that means is you can set up 
this dedicated fund. You can set up the PCE. You can set up the higher education mm-hmm. fund. But any interest that those funds are earning is a state revenue. Ah, okay. Right. I mean, that's how I'm reading this. If, yeah. if, if they say that the, if they say that the land grant from the university, that the, the money generated from that can't be used as a dedicated source of revenue to fund the university, then it seems to me like you could put a giant bucket of money aside for a higher education fund or for whatever, um, but that any revenue from that still has to be unallocated, right? You can't say that the revenue that's generated from this goes back into this particular pot. I mean, it, it really seems like it's sort of like a set of rules that was written for an era that we didn't really contemplate. Because it's like, you know, how do you deal with an asset, you know, that is just worth more all of a sudden? You know, say, say like you've got, a, you know, say you have $400 million that is stock assets, and then all of a sudden it's worth $420 million. I guess when you realize it, and well, you sell it off and you have new income, right? But right. like, it's an interesting sort of issue that sort of, but I, actually, I think it... I, it yeah, sorry. It kind of I mean, it goes to this sort of underlying issue that like Alaska is you know is a trust fund baby now in some ways, and and it's not like some of the old rules don't neatly at least sort of apply over when you're living off of the interest from a huge fund, right? I mean, yeah, but I I don't think it's as broken as all that. Like I think that the the idea that any income to the state any revenue generated by the state should then be allocated by the legislature isn't problematic to me it's just that the legislature Mm -hmm. then should decide to put it into whatever you know put it back into where it it, came from yeah but i but i think what this does tell me is that maybe the reverse sweep was a was a mechanism we didn't really need like we could have just said okay here's the higher education fund and the legislature can choose to allocate money into that fund each year or they can choose not to you know they can the the, mm-hmm. the interest generated from that fund go, would go back into sort of general revenue and then if they want to allocate that same amount in into that fund great and maybe they have a tight year and they don't do that um, but i don't think that the sort of the nest egg of that fund necessarily needs to be swept back into the um and that's something i probably need to read more about too but it, but it seems to me like that's you know, we get at this idea of a terminal appropriation, right? Like if the if the legislature has said we want to move a billion dollars into this fund for education, that's the end of it, right? Now if that if that fund for education generates revenue for the state, then what happens with the new money is a different question, I think. But again, I'm not I'm learning about this. I'm like muddling through <laughs> it and and it's kind of been an interesting journey. And to me it's like I, I've been following the legislature pretty closely for a long time. And there's so many little trails like this, so many little rabbit holes and so many little nuanced things and how people interpret it really matters. And I think that the recognition that we're all trying to wrap our arms around this is, is such an important piece of, of policymaking is that there's a lot of, a lot of policy and a lot of conflicting policy and a lot of complicated things out there and trying to understand the intent is really important. Yeah. It's interesting yeah. because too, there's like a approach that feels like, it's like I heard the rules and I but I never actually read the rules, right? Like yeah. kind of vibe and sometimes in the legislature. And also especially, I mean, I'm gonna be honest, like a lot of this is all news to me too. And yeah. so like in also in the way we, we cover how it all works. Like it's just there's just all these sort of different little weird areas that really inform uh the discussion now so yeah i'm so, doing so, the digging pat there's nobody nobody better suited to get lost in a rabbit hole one of one of the thank you 
one of these, one of the things I really thought was interesting about this is that it kind of points to the unconstitutionality of the education raffle that was just recently instituted, right? Like the idea that people are giving money to the state for this raffle, and then it's going to be used for a specific purpose, which is education. Uh, that seems to run afoul of, of our constitution, right? In this, because that is a dedicated uh, revenue for a dedicated purpose. But right, doesn't it say may designate this instead of shall, right? Right, and so so um, there's all these like on. little like tricky ways they get through things by doing this sort of stuff, yeah. And so they do address that a little bit in the citizens' guide here, and it says it's generally it's generally understood that the authors of the constitution intended certain exceptions to the prohibition against dedicated revenues, such as pension contributions, proceeds from bond issues, revolving fund receipts and sinking fund receipts, et cetera, et cetera. So kind of normal government stuff is, is sort of outside the realm of this dedicated funds section. And it says, indeed, beyond these practices, exceptions to the prohibition on the dedication of revenue, it must be noted that some dedications have a legitimate role in state financial management, despite the public policy problems that cause them to be prohibited in the Alaska Constitution. Dedication allows the benefits of a public program to be directly linked to those who pay for them. Some revenues are dedicated in Alaska today in a manner that make the practice constitutionally acceptable, namely that the pertinent statutes say that the legislature may appropriate certain money for a certain purpose. So exactly what you're getting at is that that any anything that exists on our books today that is constitutional and and that law is an example of it, uh, the public school trust fund law. If you go into statute and read what it says, it says that the um, the legislature may appropriate not more than 5%, yada, yada, yada. And so it's, so it is interesting that um, all of these things that we have on the books that are perceived to be uh, a, you know, a dedicated fund. Like if you, if you pay for your raffle ticket, your education raffle, there's no guarantee that that's going to be used for education because it's illegal to do that, to guarantee that to you. So, yeah. So a lot of these programs are relying on the legislature to, sort of follow the rules and the history which we have a system now where it's a lot of legislatures who would really not like to not follow the rules and the precedent on the history at least but that are you know a couple seats away from a majority in the house especially so well right so when when this is what I would call a norm, right? It is an it's a it's an observed norm, and it's something that that they can deviate from really easily. And so, if you get a group of legislators in that are like, "Man, we don't want to do that," then really there's nothing to stop them. And that's just kind of how this works. Um, okay, so we've we've yeah. probably gone pretty far down this rabbit hole. Okay, so another big thing this week was that the. Uh, House made some really rapid moves on this energy relief check for $1,300. And that to me seems like a really clever way to frame things. Like it seems like Dunleavy wanted to have this big PFD and then the House sort of said, man, we can't give him that W and we've got all this money sitting around and it looks bad if we just hoard it. Oh, wait, what if we, instead of inflating the PFD and paying out a giant PFD, what if we what if we just move this into a, a, what we call an energy relief check? And the nice thing about that framing is, is a, it gives the it gives the house kind of a, a win instead of giving Dunleavy a win, and it uh, it also sets it up as more of a one-time payment than an expectation that we're going to have a recurring, you know, the PFD spiking this year and it should stay that high and 
Um, so I, I think that I think it was a good idea, and I think that it makes sense, and I think that it's like like a fair i don't feel like it's just a, a i don't feel like it's just a political maneuver i feel like it has like a, a real purpose yeah because it is kind of there there's like several sort of different angles on it that you know I, I i kind of saw this news talked about it a little bit and kind of moved on but yeah you're right there are like you know it's a there's a political sort of angle to it right where um you know it's sort of this jockeying of who gets to take credit for it you know and it is you know there's this, the reality is that there is like all of a sudden a bunch of money right that that is available that you know the sort of arguments that they were using against the larger pfd for a while aren't don't hold up to a situation like this but i think your point of it being you know important to note that this is more a reflection of our point in time that oil prices are incredibly high you know but for an unknown and uncertain length of time, right? That's the problem with oil prices. So having to be one time seem to me it makes a lot of policy sense from that angle of being able to say this isn't going to be how it is moving forward. I think though it you know it'd be really interesting to you know there's talk right now in the legislature about how to change the pol- how to change the D- PFD you know formula, and and for me I guess it's that's what, where I would hope. You know, attention continues. I'm sure it will not, right? Where everything's saved, we don't need to change anything now. But um, it would be really interesting to look at some of these policies now under higher oil prices, because there have been um, in the House at least. I think is it Representative Adam Wool and maybe Representative Hopkins. I think, but out of Fairbanks, um, there's been this idea of redoing the uh, PFD formula. And to include some element of annual oil revenue into it, so it would be part, um, a little, you know, part of it would come from the 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 PF the permanent fund still, but then part of it would be like oil flowing through the legislature, and they would be they may be able to appropriate it probably to the dividends, um, but but have but that kind of idea I think would be interesting to really look at it again under like. What is high? What, what what does it look when like when you know high? There's higher oil prices or even moderately high oil prices, uh, because I think maybe maybe those sort of changes make it e- you know maybe this reality makes it easier for something like that to to pass. Because I think having some amount it's it sort of you know it's like the same thing with a state budget, right? Is you really want to build in like a baseline sustainable baseline expectation, and then you have the ceiling and the floor of the the element the highly wild element of oil prices right and so we want to be able to get by on you know on that investment income but you you know you also want to be able to take advantage of the upside of high oil prices too yeah it seems like a huge problem to have it have the pfd uh check every year just sort of be a decision of the legislature because uh then then all of a sudden like this political perception is if you lobby the legislature you can get a higher pfd and it's and if if you or if it's an election year you have to pay out a higher pfd and um it's it's really bad i I would i would think that the legislature would want to remove themselves from that and set a formula Mm -hmm. so that they don't have to go through this uh this i mean it's a huge argument every year of like you're not paying enough you're paying too much and it's really right now it's a decision that sits on their shoulders as individuals um, rather than on a, you know, you can't just point to a formula and say, we're following the formula. Yeah. And until it gets settled too. I mean, I think we talked about, you know, the competition for funding every year. Right. And yeah. so the big, you know, and so the whole system gets 
wacky if you have dividend checks competing with everything else because of course yep. that's you know the, the direct money is going to always be the uh, more popular avenue of way way of spending it and so you know that's that's sort of my personal thought on it, is i hope sure hope that you know the attention to to get something on the pfd would still uh, be going on despite all of this and i think it is it, it, it definitely is but um you know the reality of it all and the push you know the government and, and you know with the governor being the way he is on it and with his demands is you know it's so unrealistic that anything will get done and i think that's really unfortunate yeah well that's the the old kick the can game right you just yeah wait till next year and hope there's a new guy so um speaking of elections the uh uh campaign limits uh were radically altered this week the uh APOC came out with a statement that basically said that there are no limits on individual donations to campaigns uh, and mm-hmm. uh, no limits on what was the other part of it? Yeah, basically and anything parties. that t- go to, is it goes to individuals. Yeah. Parties are still limited and uh, yeah, but I and then like union groups and stuff. I, think I can exercise my First Amendment rights to free speech by paying five million dollars into the elect uh, Walker fund if I want to. Yeah, well, you just give it to you give it to Walker directly now instead of. Oh right, I don't need to give PAC. it to a pack. Yeah. I can give it right to the campaign, right? Yeah. Yep, it is. It's going to be a while, and so. So what does that do? Politically speaking, there's like you know the there's a lot of attention and effort now that says, "Hey, legislature, you guys need to pass a law to fix it," but that's like not not going to happen. I think we need to be we need to be really clear about that right now. I think you I mean it's important to pressure, but. At this point in the Senate, uh, State Affairs Senator Mike Shower has already said uh, before session that there's other priorities, you know, other priorities like, you know, anti-election, you know, election integrity, quote unquote, election integrity bills. Right. The Domino's Pizza tracking app. Yeah. And so there's that. And then there's a a new statement out. um, The Anchorage Daily News talked to Dunleavy um, this weekend about it. And he literally says. Mike, so the you know, I'll read it here. So, um, so this is the, the lead into it. Any new caps would only take effect without a veto by Governor Mike Dunleavy, who said in a phone interview Friday that he thinks political donors should be able to contribute as much as they want, provided that candidates also have to disclose where their money comes from. Quote, you know me, I'm the guy that wants people to be able to drive four-wheelers on the road. I'm a freedom guy, he said. My tendency is to just let people do what they want in campaign finance law as long as it's disclosed and accurate. So, uh, I mean, whoa, to me, it's like, I, I don't know what we're going to, what's going to happen from here on out, because yeah. you know, this is a guy who got elected with, uh, you know, the elect Mike Dun or Mike Dunleavy for governor pack, uh, which was funded by his brother, just sort of buying, you know, buying a name recognition in the race and, and getting his message out there. And his campaign was like anemic compared to this pack. And so I guess at the very least now we get to. It just is hand in hand. There's no more pretend, right? Or just his his wealthy older brothers just bankrolling his race for him. Yeah, you, is is that the guy who made all his money working for Enron, fixing energy prices in California, and escaped personal consequences for the company's actions? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It is. So cool. Glad uh, glad so he's anyways, making big decisions about Alaska. <laughs> I mean, I think it's wild. I mean, I just I I, I guess I wasn't I. I wasn't expecting that definitive of a statement about it all, honestly. Like this, I mean, this that's just saying unless they've got they, unless they can somehow get to a veto-proof majority on it, it's not going to be enacted. And so, right. I mean, honestly, it's like let's get the initiative 
books out and start working on, I guess, the 2024 election to get these instituted, right? And so, you know, I think um, Les Guerra, a Democratic candidate for governor, pointed this out in, a, in some sort of statement that sort of like painted the, the timeline of how Dunleavy sort of helped, sort of orchestrated all this. You know, yeah. he was the guy that, you know, this, the lawsuit was brought against the state. And he didn't really defend it. You know, the, the the first ruling came out knocking him down and he stepped away right away. It was so, so it's such a monumental sort of like, whoa, kind of moment that even the courts, you know, were trying to get him to get back into the lawsuit and try to defend this uh, law in some sort of fashion. And he said no. And so and, and now we have him saying that, yeah, he just wants people to it's freedom, freedom to have oligarchs by elections, basically. I mean. Yeah. It's just wild to me. Um, the idea that money equates to speech in elections is is so bizarre to me. Yeah. I mean, I think that that I think it is, you know, one of these like issues that we're going to be dealing with for a long time. Right. It all comes from Citizens, Citizens United. Right. Um, and, and we're still feeling the reverberations of it. And, and so it's just to me. I don't know, hard to see, I think. I, I think I hope that, you know, this is something I, I hope and I, I feel like I almost can already know that there is going to be an initiative on this, but it unfortunately is not going to be, you know, in place for this year's elections. You know, even if it is an initiative, it only gets passed this year. So we get two elections, right, with no campaign limits on them. Okay, so the so the the limit on individual contributions was $500. What does this, what do you think this looks like now? I mean, I don't know. I mean, it, it, I think, I think we we're gonna see tens of thousands of dollars given to these races. It's actually kind of interesting because the five hundred dollar limit, I think, was actually like really well liked by a lot of like the quote unquote donor class because there wasn't, you know, you could say, well, I gave them my five hundred dollars. Now I can now right. I, they can leave me alone. Uh-huh. But now there's like a there's almost some pressure. You know, I guess I mean, it'd be interesting to see how many people are really w- willing to open up their checkbooks that mm-hmm. much because, you know, sure, there's some candidates you you really like, but like there's a lot of $500 don- donations out there that I feel like that are just like totally perfunctory, right? That are like, we run in the same circles and it would be rude for me not to give you money, but I would don't right. definitely don't want to give you any more than this. Um, so what happens when it's, when it's like, where's my next 500 and my next 500 yeah. and my next, yeah. But now, now they can be like, where's my 10,000? Where's my 50,000? Where's my yeah. te- $20 million? Right. And so, I mean, that's going to be really interesting. I, it, you know, that I think to me, uh, what this says, and if I was, you know, if I was, if I was in charge of the process and, and we had this going on, you know, I would, I would look to a way to you know, re- rapidly accelerate the pace of financial disclosures. Because I think that this system, this idea that you only have to really disclose the beginning of the campaign year, 30 days before election and seven days before an election, and then you have the 24-hour reports. It well, and you is, don't even really need to do that because as we've seen with like in cases like like Dave Bronson, you can take the hit can, and just yeah, roll through yeah. and miss those deadlines or, or falsify your records and then... Or you take on debt. Taking on debt is a good way to kind of hide some of it. Um, And so, but, but I think like at the, like at the very least, we need to have more teeth to our campaign regulatory structure. If you're going to allow unlimited contributions. And I think like, 
you know, we need some ability to see into these kind of contributions faster because there are ways where, right, yeah. you can kind of hide stuff um, through the process much quicker. And so, you know, I, I, I want to know who's I want to know who's going to give the first million dollars directly to a candidate. Right. And it, and I think to me, you know, if I was a candidate, I would be really wary about it right you know hopefully you'd be wary about it saying you know like what's it going to look like right you know what what does it look like if you come in and some ceo has personally given you two million dollars you know at making up for 99 percent of your campaign funds right like that's the p possibility we would be facing with this and that to me i think is such a such a warped process. I mean, it's just, it's so fundamental to this problem of viewing money as free speech, right? That you have more free speech if you have more money. You got to yeah. weigh that perception though, the perception of like, will people think this looks bad versus also I'll have $2 million to spend on my campaign. You know, yeah. I, I, I think that that's, for a lot of people, that's going to be a pretty easy decision. And, and they'll be, they'll look at the guy, give them $2 million and be like, well, I kind of agree with their political philosophy and like, and so it's not bad that I take money from them because that that's what I'm going to do anyways. And I mean, I, I think this and almost in some way, I, I wonder, too, if this is the Republicans thinking, OK, well, th they pass ballot measure too. they, you know, being this secrety, shadowy cabal of completely moderate folks, moderate centrists. Yeah, I, I wonder if there's some element of them looking at it and being like, well, we got to fight back and we're going to fight back by not defending our election laws so we can have unlimited you know, is to me it is, you know, it's just so warped to have money be treated like this in politics, right? Because it's like yeah. all of a sudden, you know, five hundred dollars to me always seemed like a pretty reasonable limitation, especially when you have packs, right? You have a way to dump tons of money into races if you really want to. But at the very least, at the candidate level, you could kind of like squint in, at it and be like, well. You know, it's a you know, it reasonably levels out people's influence to to affect campaigns. And now you have you, know, you could drop I mean, and that's the other another thing though too to keep in mind is that like it was always candidates could always dump as dump as much money of their own money into a race as possible. So it wasn't right. like this great equalizer necessarily because a richy rich candidate could drop a hundred mil a hundred thousand dollars into their own campaign, which we've seen, you know, several times. People have put mm -hmm. a lot of their own money into these races. And honestly, it doesn't usually work, right? Some of those campaigns yeah. that have a lot of that money don't seem to be all that effective. So I mean, it's a good reminder too that you know money isn't everything, but at the same time, a, a giant wave of money could be something, right? And so yeah. for legislative races, it's probably going to have a relatively minor impact of it because you know a, a really contentious race will raise you know hundred or two hundred thousand dollars so far. We got to remember, too, that like legislative districts in, in at least in like the big kind of competitive, you know, like in Anchorage, for example, you know, the, the legislative districts there are like neighborhoods. So it's pretty hard to like there's a lim just a limited amount of money that you can do to reach people. Like you, at some point you're going to you're buying all the radio ads, but the amount of money that is able to win votes is, uh, you know, really quick, in my opinion, Um I guess diminishing you know, returns. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah. Uh, yeah so the, it's to, but the, it's it's the sort of thing. I mean, we could we could unpack it for days, and it's really aren't going to know what it, it's going to look like and how it's going to affect the race until 
we have an election through, yeah. right? So we're going to, I mean, it's going to be just a wild year. So you have, you know, you have this unlimited campaign contributions, you have new redistricting maps, you have a new election system, and you have uh, the dark money stuff that we haven't really seen into, come into effect quite yet, but, you know, or come into play in any sort of major way. But all those sort of things are really interesting. So it's like, to me, it's like, man, the legislature if, should really be pumping some money into APOC um, to yeah. just to make sure it's got the tools to, to handle stuff uh, going forward. But of course, uh, I don't, I don't think that's going to, I don't see that really happening to any sort of significant degree. The, the, yeah. the disdain of the legislature towards APOC is to me, is one of the it's like, really great unfortunate. travesties in there. Because it's like, you know, it, to me, if there's any sort of like good argument for like a completely independent piece of government corporation or something, it would that would be it. You know, there need to be some ability of that for them to be able to kind of exclude themselves from the political fight because it is so. You know, it's kind. Of, it's almost like the per diem thing. They all kind. Of, they all can fight about everything else, but the one thing that they can agree on is that they don't want to fund APOC adequately. So it would be. It would be nice to see them with more staff more autonomy more teeth this is the public process man public transparency it's like important really important to be able to like look at this sort of stuff and know how it's working and and who's influencing what like i you know i I think like as soon as you step into the public realm you should be expected to abide by a higher bar of transparency than in the private life you cannot I th- you cannot bring in this idea that you are above the law to it. And I think that ends up happening here with this sort of stuff. And it's just so like antithetical to yeah. the public process. And I think that's, I, we could go down. You, I'm, this is you, another you, thing. You, but you, we're just, we're just poking our nose into the rabbit holes today. You talk, you talk about people being above the law. And I thought it was interesting that this week, um, a, a follow-up article came out uh, on the attorney general and it was basically the story about the, the woman who very bravely came forward and, and basically she feels like they haven't done anything at, at, you know, they've done a very minimal effort. They haven't really followed through with this special prosecution. Um, it was a little bit disheartening and it was that sort of feeling of like, Oh, these guys are just uh, like outside of the realm of le- legal ramifications and are being protected by the system. Yep. It's a pretty good summation of it, right? Yeah. I mean, I think that's like this idea of the deliverance of justice. You know, it, it's complicated and difficult to achieve without the the guy being an attorney general, right? Like the yeah. system already fails regular people in regular run of the mill situations. It's like, and then so of course it's you know add in the fact that this guy was or is powerful and has got some buddies that wanted to. You know, there. You know, it was like it was an open secret that this guy had done this thing. You know, it was kind of known in the community, and no one did anything about it. Like, and so, you know, I think it's an indictment on the whole system in a way of kind of where the preferences and priorities rest in the in the justice system. Right. You know, like this guy's so valuable that we're going to compromise all of our values and rules and laws to protect him. Like that's yeah. And, and it's, and, it, and I think it's a good reminder, you know, it's, and I think that what we shouldn't forget is that system isn't that great to start off with. Right. And it's, just, and so it's even worse when there's an additional level of, of letting this guy get away with it pretty much. And I think that's yeah. pretty disappointing. Yeah. So what else happened yeah. this week? Uh, the legislature's taken some actions in, uh, in terms of like supporting Ukraine. Um, there's a resolution passed, 
uh, I think there was maybe one no vote. I can't imagine who that might have been. <laughs> mm. <laughs> um, I don't know what's happening in terms David of David Eastman, in, just in case you need to know. In terms of Ukraine stuff, what's what's going on in the legislation? I, mean, I think it's been good to see the sort of sense of unity around it. I think they're, you know, the unity of, you know, everybody minus David Eastman uh, trying to come around on it. And I think that, you know, they approved a statement. um, The House approved a statement this week. Um, You know, you could I, you know, looking at the language in it, I could have seen how it's the exact sort of thing that they would have got wrapped around the axle on sort of fighting over the minutia of it and, and every little statement in it. And, and they didn't. So I don't know. I think that's, there's something to be said there. Um, it's going to be really interesting to see how this plays in the long term, Right. I think we are, you know, for the last, for as long as I've been here, all I hear about legislator, you know, especially the congressional delegation talking about is Alaska's strategic importance to the world. Right. And it feels a little different when there's all of a sudden conflict over here. Right. Uh, so seeing some of that stuff come together, the economic uh, impacts of it, you know, there's going to be the, the impacts of the closed airspace, um, on Alaska too, as far as, you know, Alaska being a, a refueling destination, which I only assume will only, you know, become more important moving forward. It's, it's interesting. I mean, obviously the biggest thing is the price of oil, right? Which is skyrocketed over a hundred dollars already. Um, you know, it, it solidifies this intent to pay the energy relief check right yeah but you know domestically it's going to mean higher gas prices yeah so so one thing um that's been a discussion is the permanent fund investments so you've been following that like the the permanent fund has a non-zero amount of money invested in in um you know Russian companies. And I think there's a lot of political pressure for them to divest, but also the permanent fund has a long history of, of like, no, we just make investment decisions. We're not political. Um, and they're, it's kind of an interesting thing for me that it's all, they're always kind of like under, under that pressure. It's, it's one of those things like where they kind of already missed the boat is sort of my understanding to divest. So you know, the, what happened since last week and this week is, you know, the complete collapse of the Russian economy, the complete collapse of the value of the ruble, uh, the and all the sanctions that make, from my understanding, you know, divesting and getting your money out of there far more difficult than it was two weeks ago. Right. Um, so it's almost the bank like holders. And so now it's like, you know, you have this thing, you know, I saw, uh, I'm not sure how the, 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 our, the Alaska's assets, it's like $210 million at the start of it. Um, I saw at least a, a tweet talking about Kentucky has their, their teacher retirement system has like $13 million. Oh no. And that when it was in invested in Russian assets and they lost something like 95% of the value of them. So it went from being $13 million to like Uh $700,000. So, you know, the question now in some ways is, do you hold on to the money to hold, do you hold on to these assets that are now worth 5% of what they used to be? Mm-hmm. hoping that Russia wins and it becomes valuable again. Like you all, all of a sudden, you know, this idea that you were trying to avoid moral decisions and investments, like becomes way more complicated and tricky now because like the right, the moral thing I think is, would be to sell anyways and not, you know, not 
bank on that blood money coming back. But at the same time, is it really great? Is it really a wise idea to cash out when it's only worth five percent of what it was worth at you know before? Like, yeah, and so I mean, but conscientious uh, like investing aside, the the really fascinating piece of this is that it makes investing in dictatorships really unattractive as a, as a strategy mm-hmm. because now it reveals the volatility of that particular like investment strategy and so it becomes like if if you're in if you're a uh, massive sovereign wealth fund and you're investing in other dictatorships maybe you reassess the the stability of that asset right and yeah. so you can sort of get at some of these moral problems through regular investing questions of like oh maybe dictators are prone to uh su- sudden and imminent collapse and maybe that's not a good place to put our money that's why like the modern economy likes democracy in some way because democracy is is democracies are the least prone you know america aside least prone to war you know they they I, and I think it's it something I remember from a college class is talking about how democracies tend to go to war less than other countries, right? That it's sort of the, the own, the natural political force is typically, typically, again, huge asterisk on all of this, sort of to discourage, you know, one guy running us into a war. And obviously we've seen that not play out in times in our, our history, but, um, I mean, I think it's part of, part of me, part of looking at when you are talking about, you know, when we talk about the the fight for democracy in in Ukraine, I think that to me is part of it. Is that, you know, it, you know, you the idea that you maintain democracies and and keep keep these countries and their resources out of the hands of dictators who can pretty much unilaterally decide to start a war, um, I think is a good thing, right? I think that you want to minimize, you know, have forces that minimize conflict right and so it's interesting <laughs> it's interesting <laughs> we say the word interesting so much okay because and it's because we are genuinely interested people we are curious human beings and yes. we are interested in things so <laughs> i want to talk about uh the dumbest thing yeah. Um, so the Republicans, so reasonably normal bill, reasonably unexciting in my opinion, but it for some reason became like an all day flashpoint. So because it's a rental car bill, it you know has a subject line of rental car. So anything related to rental car companies is apparently free game in it. And so we got to hear like an entire day's worth of amendments that were well, let's reduce the rental car tax rate. Let's eliminate the rental car tax rate. Let's uh, exempt a bunch of certain people from the rental car tax rate. And it was all these sort of things that it was just like, I don't know who, who what rental car company hurt you. It was it was wild. It, it was just this sort of thing where, you know. Give me an example. Like so, what, are we, what are we talking about here? So the, the most sort of, and I think to me, like, there's a, this is just like the peak opportunity cost sort of argument. Like we wasted an entire legislative day about essentially nothing. Um, but the, the 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 most sort of agree, egregious sort of amendment was one that would have taken this bill and then put a really strict limit on, you know, when you like get a rental car and you return it without a full tank of gas and there's a little placard that says we'll charge yeah. you $20 or something or or sure six dollar gas um that would have 
limited it to 110% of the market rate for gas. And okay. is, is this whole idea, and it was a, it was a, it, the debate on this amendment lasted a while. Um, it got kind of heated, but this, this wait, is, Matt. So this isn't this isn't the free market Republicans trying to like uh, influence the the business practices of private business owners, is it? Oh, I mean, it totally. <laughs> oh, that's the thing. That's exactly the thing, right? And so, I mean, it was just I didn't know. I don't know about you, but I've I don't think I've ever returned it without a full tank of gas because. So they just spent all day talking about the, the extra. They, they never gas. even got to the final bill on it, the final vote on it. They, they and they canceled their. their Friday work session be Friday session because everyone wanted to get on a plane. Um, I don't know. It, <laughs> That's it was amazing. So like, they they used all the time, they used up all their time and were late to the airport and had to return their rental cars with an empty tank of gas <laughs> because they were busy arguing about. I, if only, the, yeah. The if only it was that poetic. <laughs> um, but no, I mean, I think that it's just interesting to see the the most quote unquote business friendly republicans being anything but it would be like saying it'd be like saying pat you can only mark up your comics from wholesale by five percent not enough to yeah. cover the cost to store and sell those comics right you know that was sort of discussion that like quickly erupted on on twitter about it um andrew halcrow uh longtime political dude legislator has his own podcast where you can you know it's got a, it's about life politics and sing the song matt sing it life <laughs> politics entertain um okay you got it you got yeah it. <laughs> I, mean, I can't remember the order now anyways uh but you know so he's he's invested in rental car companies and was you know talking about you know the, his ability to do business in it he got in a twitter argument now with the the representative who is running that amendment you know, which was which was pitched on the anecdote well, of he he I he comes I, from rental car family, right? Yeah, and yeah. and so the but the the representative that was pitching it was pitching it on the grounds of, uh, she paid this fine one time when her when her child peed on her luggage or something, and I don't know, I like yes, I like that those rental car fees are bad, like but it's yeah. also like. I don't know. There's a cost of doing business at some level. I, I I don't get, I don't get this like highly inconsistent approach to the free market. When they say that this this gas price thing needs to be regulated, you're like, aha! You do think there should be regulations, right? And yeah. So, and then all, but then also I'm saying like there shouldn't and then be. Also, no, you're like, arguing the other side. Yeah, yeah. but it, and also and the, the point in the, in the hearing, and I think this is the point of like kind of goes to a more fundamental problem with like doing these amendments on the floor that sound good right is that it's just weird micromanaging stuff that seems to be coming from like a personal place of like animosity that wasted an entire day that i can't stop talking about too that's funny i mean i think it's as much as like you want to criticize them for being hypocrites for you know, for sort of portraying themselves as free market Republicans and then going into this minutia of like how much, what percentage can we overcharge for our, for our gas? They're demonstrating some hip hypocrisy, but they're, but they're doing the work of regulating in the private sector. Right. And so if, if the rental car companies are doing something really awful, if they're charging people 5,000% on their gas and using it as like a, 
aha gotcha thing, then then that's where the government should step in and, yeah. and do something about it. The in in a general sense, it seems like the kind of thing that the government's there for. Right, right, and I think that's that is the thing. I think it, there is a difference between, and this is, you know, I think that's I think that's sort of where a lot of this breaks down. Right, is that you have. You know, there are well-meaning, you know, efforts to truly understand an economy or industry and try to regulate it and, and make sure it operates fairly and ethically or whatever um, for everybody involved. And then there are weird sort of like weirdly punitive efforts like this that seem like a either are t- taking out a personal grievance against somebody, which very yeah. well may be because, again, Andrew Halcrow, moderate Republican guy who's been very critical of Dunleavy and Bronson, is would be on the receiving end of this sort of amendment. So um, I, I think that's sort that's of one funny. of the things to keep in mind with it because, like, well, yeah, and I think maybe also the, the very clear issue with it is that it ended up delaying the House Finance Committee's work that day, which ended up delaying the release of the budget, which ended up meaning that you had people delivering public testimony without knowing what on the budget, without knowing what the budget really looked like, which is, you know, they're, they would have under the normal schedule, they would have released the budget like hours before public testimony would have started. So it's not really like a great process already, but it's an even worse process when the budget's not even out. And so yeah. uh, that element of it all kind of felt bad where, you know, you're, you're watching this hearing basically directly snarl other work, right? And I think that mm-hmm. is what sort of is the underlying thing that bugged me. Like, I don't really care if they're going to get in a big fight about about rental car companies, but when it means that they're it's at the expense of something else, I think that is what's so frustrating about it. Yeah. All right. Well, All right. <laughs> that's, uh, that's, I mean, okay, cool. I'm <laughs> yeah. less invested, I think, in that than you are. <laughs> maybe I just watched it all day and maybe it just sort of yeah. is occupying like, this, so this much of my This is what's on TV? Yeah. Why is this the only thing on TV? Yeah. All right. Well, hey, Matt, it's great talking to you and uh, we'll talk again soon. Goodbye, thanks, Alaska. Thanks for humoring me today, everybody. See you later, right. Alaska. Bye. Hello to you out there. Thanks for listening to our podcast. If you want to support our work, you can find Matt Buxton at MidnightSunAK.com. He puts out a daily newsletter about what's going on in Alaska politics and the legislature, and it's just really great writing. Uh, and if you want to support my work, you can find me at Patreon.com slash Alaska Robotics. And that supports my time editing this podcast and doing a lot of other things like comics and watercolor paintings and things like that. So I really do appreciate it. And a big thanks to Marion Call, whose music we excerpted uh, for our theme song of our show. Uh, That comes from Real Alaskan Girl. Uh, Go check it out on Bandcamp.